0: Hi there, and welcome to Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bengura. On this show, I talk all things music, everything from music performance to music production, music education, music research. I use this show to document my experiences as a music PhD student at the University of Michigan. And I try to invite as many people as I can into the conversation to talk about what they do in music. Today, we are starting off Black History Month with a bang. We have Jordan Brown, who's a current PhD student in ethnomusicology at Harvard University. We chat all about her experiences performing and arranging for acapella groups. We talk about her single that just dropped last year. And we chat about what it's like to be a Black woman music scholar in music academia. We also chat about a 2001 article by E. Patrick Johnson called Queer Studies, or Almost Everything I Know About Queer Studies I Learned From My Grandmother. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, everyone. I'm so excited to welcome Jordan Brown on the
1: podcast today. Jordan, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you for agreeing to be on. You know, it's my absolute favorite thing to make connections with people through the podcast and especially people that I meet at conferences because you're not at the same university. You know, it can be easy to just like cool people cool presentations and then it kind of fades into the ether but getting to make you know hopefully more of a lasting connection is always really exciting to me so thank you so much for being willing to speak with me Normally, I start off the podcast by just asking each guest their early experiences in music. So when you started playing music, singing music, writing music, anything like that, uh, your early music influences, what you were listening to as a kid, uh, Were you know if you're from a musical family, what your parents' music tastes like, anything like that.
1: So I guess I don't really come from that musical of a family um my grandfather plays it's more with my grandparents my my grandfather plays the saxophone my, my grandma um always was singing in the church i was raised in a, a black baptist church um my parents i, I feel like i'd skipped the music gene um which is okay um because <laughs> um, we still love them but i i guess it all started for me and i was in the third grade i started playing the viola so i have a lot of orchestral experience um so i I've played the viola. I think I stopped probably around college. It's probably when I stopped playing. So was that? Maybe 12, 13 years, solid years of dedicated playing.
0: Okay. We have that in common. My first instrument was also viola and I played for about 12 years and then switched when I got to college. Okay. So, very cool.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I've kind of noticed that I feel like some black women like the viola for some reason, um, <laughs> like a lot of, a lot Ooh. of black women I know are violists actually. Oh, that's a paper right there. It is a paper. Something about
0: the timbre of that instrument. Interesting. Hmm. Somebody write it up. Yeah. Listeners, write it up.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, great. So I started on the viola. I always had a, a knack for singing or an interest in it, but I didn't really get into singing yet. It's kind of like always in the background. And then um, maybe in the eighth grade, um, so I've attended Magnet schools or gifted schools my whole life, and in the eighth grade they gave us the option of uh, you can get out of PE if you choose another you know elective. I was like, okay, cool. So I'll do jazz band. So I, I joined jazz mm. band with the intention of percussion. I'd all summer um, on my drum kit, and then they, when I got there, they're like, I actually want you on tenor sax. I was like, okay, cool. So I immediately asked my grandpa for one of his spares and um, got to it. So I that's when I picked up tenor sax. Um, and then I got to got to high school. I still was doing orchestra. But then I was like, you know what, kind of want to start a band. So I, I kind of started a band with my friends. We did a lot of, I was the front man, I guess you could say. Um, so I did a lot of work with that. Um, and then I started my own acapella group in my senior year, I guess I'd say. Um, so that was fun, I guess, because then when I got to college, I joined an acapella group and that was mm-hmm. the biggest and probably most rewarding musical experience I ever had in my entire life. Um, mm. I joined my second week of college, and we toured, we've released albums, go check us out on Spotify, you know. Okay, um, so
0: what's the name of the group?
1: Who's in treble is the name of the group. Um, for those Great. listening, okay. who's like, so at the University of Virginia, so who's like H-O-O-S in treble, like the clef? so <laughs> yeah it's very good. iconic yes <laughs> um but man they're great um so i uh, music directed for them for let's see so i started music directing i was assistant music director my second semester in the group so i joined the group and i was immediately recruited to become an md Um, So I was assistant for uh, a year, and then I was music director for two years, which was kind of unheard of at the time. Um, Like, you don't do two years because it's too much work. Um, I did a lot of arranging, um, so many arrangements, like maybe 10 a semester or something like that, um, which is, that's a lot. Um, Yeah. On top of my classes, I was a music and stats double major. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I was really putting in some time, but it was, yeah, it was just so rewarding performance was my thing. And so it created that Mm -hmm. formative base for me. So that was probably where I kind of put myself on the map as as far as music, music. And then, you know, I got into what I was doing now, actually. uh, My, my fourth year of college, I took an ethnomusicology class. I didn't know what I was going to do. I really didn't want to do stats. Um, So I asked my professor, I was like, how do I get your job? And so he was like, you got to go to grad school for ethno. So I was like, okay, I will do that. And so I applied, got into FSU, but then I had a really hard choice because I also got into Berkeley for a performance. So, so I, yeah, that was a tough choice for me, but I think I made the right one. I mean, I, I know I made the right one going to FSU, Mm. so.
0: Mm. Okay. So. Wow, I have so many questions already. Um, So first of all, during your undergrad, uh, you were, what was your music major? Sorry.
1: So it was just general music. There was no like concentration. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, so it wasn't like a specifically a music performance degree or anything like that, but you were doing all this music performing on the side with your group. Okay, yeah. yeah. And also arranging. You know, that is its own skill that I have yet to tap into. So, did you just kind of get into that out of necessity? The group just needed someone to like start yeah. doing that work and you were like, "I'm just going to do it?"
1: Yeah, it's kind of like the part of the part of the gig, you know. If you're usually I feel like they recruit people recruit you know who who are like already you know want to do music major things and stuff like that and so like I feel like once they found out I really wanted to do a music major they're like hey why don't you give this a try and so they taught me a lot about the software that we used Um, we started with Finale and then we moved to MuseScore so that's just it's just part of the job well I wouldn't say unfortunately um, because it's a good (laughs) skill to have it really is but hey, it's a ton of work. And not every single acapella group does that actually, which I discovered right when we were on the road is like a lot of the groups that we met, like, I would go take time away from like the party or whatever and go arrange. And they'd be like, wow, that's very impressive. We just buy our arrangements. And I was like, Oh, interesting. That would be me.
0: <laughs> that would be, I don't know anything about composition, arranging. I was, I've told the story on the podcast before. I took one composition class during my undergrad and the C was so close. Like I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is so frustrating. I'm so bad at this. So it truly is a skill that, you know, is wild to me that you just kind of picked up or experimented enough to where you, Felt comfortable with it? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a real talent. So I don't take that for granted. Um, okay, so then you ended up uh, wanting to study ethnomusicology. Yes. Did you have an idea going into it, like what you were thinking your research might be about?
1: Yeah, so I actually, so I wanted to stem off of the work that I was doing in undergrad, which was with this uh, arts collective in South Africa called the Black Power Station, um Mm. and uh a lot of my my professor's class was about his collaboration with them and working with them and they had come over um actually and came and taught some of our classes which was nice i did a lot of work with them as well uh, um virtually on just how to like bridge a connection between south africa and the university of virginia and how we can help them out you know with our with the resources and making a more equitable experience Um, and I found that like work to be really meaningful. And so I was like, I really enjoy, you know, the, it looks like, you know, my professor had a lot of flexibility in terms of like, he's teaching us meaningful stuff. Yes, but it's not all textbook. And it's a lot of personal and real world experience that has real world impact. So when I started my master's at Florida State, I went in, um, hoping to continue to work with the black power station, but I couldn't get over there because of COVID. So because of that, I could have continued to do virtual work with them, but I definitely saw that as like a pivotal moment for sure. Mm.
0: Okay, interesting. And so now you're at Harvard University. Yes. And you're doing a PhD in musicology or is it ethno? In ethno, yeah. Okay, great. So how's your time there been? When did you start this this year?
1: Yes, I did. It, or I guess last year, technically, it's 2023. No, uh, you're right. Um, yeah, I started uh, this fall, and it's been fantastic. I've enjoyed so much my experiences both at Florida State and at Harvard. Um, and I, the cross-country move was very quick, I will say, um, because mm-hmm. I graduated uh, from FSU in May and then had a few months, and I immediately shot up here. Um, mm-hmm. But I've, I've loved it. I think, I think this field is definitely for me, and I've enjoyed like the welcoming environments in and, and both places, for sure.
0: I'm glad. Wow, I'm I'm so glad to hear that your experience so far has been great. I'd love to hear more about we talked a bit about this before we turned on the recording, your experience now in the PhD program but still identifying as a performer. So, you know, it's harder now that we are in coursework and we have to teach and all this other stuff um so I'm curious to hear how you're navigating still uh finding ways to perform, rehearse, collaborate with other musicians while you're while you started your PhD work.
1: Yeah it's it's been quite difficult I would say just adjusting um because although I feel like you know the workload is, is a tad a tad bit more rigorous than my master's but sure. um I took the semester off intentionally from performance so that I could get used to what the vibe was like and what the pace was like for me. Um, so it's been tough, but I did, I was also able to, or gave myself the leisure to take that off because I released my first single by myself in May. So.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Okay. You really buried the lead. Let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. I had been working on a single with a producer from Charlottesville, his name's Orion. So Orion, he's great. Um, we were working on it for about a year and we decided to release in May. Um, I recorded actually. So all this is jumbled because I was, uh, I was you know, undergrad class of 2020. So like all, all of my stuff is like jumbled. Ooh. Um, Ooh. Yeah, so, so <laughs> I had to go back to the University of Virginia to, well, I didn't have to, but I wanted to graduate in person right? Sure. So I did that a year afterwards, I act, after I actually graduated. And it was great because some, I got a call and they were like, hey, we want you to sing the national anthem at graduation. I was like, heck yeah, I'll do that. It was freaking great. Yes. I'm rolling in, you know, felt like a high roller for sure. Um, so while I was there at graduation, I also took a day to go record with Orion. We met at a songwriting workshop, um, which is actually led by one of the past music directors of my acapella group, who is a professional folk musician now. A lot of the music Mm -hmm. directors are ones who are continuing to pursue professional careers in music. So I'm glad I had that network. That's where this all comes full circle because it it rules my life still in a good way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So we met there, we did the songwriting exercise and where we kind of like, it was virtual. So it was like somebody, you make a beat or a melody and you pass it to the person to your left. So he made a beat melody and passed it to me and I wrote to it and we kind of liked what was going on. So we're like, hey, let's let's make it a thing. Let's do this. So it was my first single released in May. It's called Spaced Out. Uh, it's very cool. Um, but yeah, so I was able to sort of ride that wave of like I feel super accomplished putting something out like this. Mm-hmm. Um, my first time doing it and it was a total high. I I I I. I guess this is where I can plug myself also is because like absolutely I O'Rion and I talked, he's probably if I I probably will send this to him. Um Orion and I talked last week and we wanna work towards an EP release in 2024 for me. So which is great, it's perfect, but now I have to come out of my, you know, break mode and really get back into my creativity box. Mm. Um and the hardest part about it actually. It's not as much the balance of classes and and music work. It's more like all of my my creative energy goes towards my papers. Mm. And I need to sort of ration that so that I have some left to work on my personal projects.
0: Wow. That's such a great point because, you know, if you only have so much creative energy and activity, how do you ration that? Where do you put it? How do you know? like you said, where's that discernment around um, taking time off from one thing to focus a little more on another thing and that back and forth leeway of there are some years and some seasons where you're maybe leaning more into performance and then other seasons when you're maybe leaning a bit more into the academic side. So that's just so interesting. Wow. I cannot wait to hear your single. I can't believe I didn't know about this beforehand or else I would have listened to it.
1: No, it's okay. It's one of those things where like, I feel like that's always a, a tough thing as a performer. People are like, oh, so are you any good? And then it's like, "Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you go listen and tell me.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listeners, I'll certainly find the single and link it in the show notes so that you can check it out. Uh, I'm really excited to listen. So thank you for, for sharing your experience there. And wow, also what a great goal to to kind of work towards a full EP that will be a huge project alongside all of your school stuff but i think it's i think it's also yeah motivating to have um other ways that you're relating to music i think a lot of scholars can identify with we don't just relate to music in one way as right as somebody who just makes the sound or whatever okay. we're interested in in relating to music working with music in a bunch of different ways so it's cool to also have you know another creative project that that's longer term that you can work towards I bet you could get some great grant money too for that yes so
1: which is what I'm, I'm trying to look into right now I just got sent a huge list of grants so hopefully it'll come through I don't know I, that's the other good thing about for me at least being in the northeast now uh, as mm. opposed to the, the south or even in Virginia well yeah, no, even Virginia is because a lot of my friends who are to, continuing to pursue music from college are settled in New York. And so, right. like, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, have home studios. One of my friends actually owns a studio. If I'm talking to him about, you know, recording there what that sound, what that would look like. And, you know, you know, I'm still a grad student. I'm still balling on a budget. And that's like one of the <laughs> things that people don't realize about music is when people get started from the ground up you know, I mean, they're not being discovered, like it costs so much money to put Mm -hmm. like, to put energy into releasing any songs whatsoever. So like, if I was doing this completely by myself with no, you know, people who kind of know how to finesse a little bit, like, oh my God, I would be spending so much money, but I'm glad Mm -hmm. that I have connections around here. They're like, Hey, like, I know you, I know your work ethic. I know you've got talent. Let's, let's talk about how we can, you know, make this work for for the both of us. And so I really appreciate those connections being at my access over here, for sure.
0: Absolutely. And yeah, people kind of discount how big a factor that networking piece is yeah. about who you know and what they have access to, like who is willing to work with you, who's willing to share with you, and who who's willing to participate in your vision. Um, I'm working, I, I just finished a paper uh, about, Florence Price and like Black women networks in classical music and and that whole scene in the the Chicago area in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And like the fact that she was so intentional about writing music for Black women, performing with Black women, having Black women premiere her music, like it's all over um, her repertoire. And I think something that's interesting to ask with the hindsight that we have in 2023 is you know is that an intentional choice or is it a choice out of necessity like out of survival and out of right like um out of like if you're gonna remain in this space you're gonna need the support and who better to support you than the other black musicians around you right so like the cultural scene the musical scene that was developing in Chicago or the fact that each city has its own kind of sound that develops, right? Like in Harlem, like in Kansas City, like in New Orleans, like that they all have their own musical community and life that, that develops its own sound. And it's through Black people helping each other to survive in this industry that really makes our success. So just a huge part of that is like seeing your success as tied to other Black people's success. Like, oh, I want to collaborate that person because when they succeed, I succeed. Absolutely. You know, we're all in it together.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. And like, I think like, especially like today, right, when people do that now, it's like, okay, that's an intentional choice. But back then... Mm -hmm.
0: You just had to. Like who else was gonna, right? Like I really think about it, it's like, okay, yeah, she had all these black women premieres. She was working with black women. Black women were premiering her stuff all the time. And is it like, well, is it she couldn't get white people to premiere her works or is it that she was intentional about reaching out to Right. Is it like, you know, it's hard to speculate now, especially cuz, you know, she's a very she was a very private person. So we really only have her public records, like the records of this activity to to go off of what her personal politic could have been so you know that's complicated but yeah today it really is an intentional choice as far as who you're collaborating with who you're partnering with like whose name you're attached to whose work you are supporting like all of that is is huge
1: yeah absolutely and i think you know when you're when you're scrounging from the bottom up and it, like again I have I'm grateful for the the acapella network will always be there for me and it's it's so fruitful to watch my friends who I you know was their MD right you know like mm-hmm. like blossom into these amazing artists you know and everybody is working from the ground up and it's cool to have this little community of like hey, let me talk to you about, you know, how did you navigate this issue? How did you work on publicizing yourself in this way? Like, how did you do these? Like, we can actually talk to each other about that. And it doesn't make it feel so lonely at the end of the day, which is mm. really nice.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you've made those important connections and that those connections have continued, you know, from your time in your undergrad. That's really special. Uh, and that you're making new connections now in your new program. So I also want to take a moment to ask you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we met at the big music con in November of 2022. uh, And we both mentioned that it was our first time going in person. (laughs) So I've been to, yeah, some SMTs online since 2020. You know, the last two years, we're online. And then this was the big one in person with all three societies, which I think happens every like five years or something. So it was a particular special. I heard it special... was
1: 10. I heard it was 10. Is it 10. 10? Yes. Because
0: oh. <laughs> it was crazy. NOLA yes. is. <laughs> that was my first time going to NOLA. That was a crazy conference. So it was it, it was really exciting. I'd love to hear just a bit about your experience going to the conference and your experience presenting.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. First of all, it was my first time applying to a conference as well, you know what I mean? Or not a conference. Uh, you've never done, like, like,
0: a, okay, I was like, wait, you've so not I, done, like, a grad student conference? I did, like, or? a
1: smaller regional conference, the okay, yeah. Sub- Southern Research Graduate Symposium. So it was, like, just with, mm-hmm. like, people in Florida, basically. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I did, my first presentation was on Black Panther, actually, which is very cool. Um, Dope. So I was very excited to do that. But yeah, this was like, you know, on my master's thesis and like, you know, I was during application season for my PhD. So like, I was just like, you know, like banging out stuff, you know, I was like, I'm going to apply and if I don't get in, it's fine. So I was waitlisted actually at first. And then a month later, they were like, congratulations. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, so yeah, I was super excited, but also really nervous to present on like such a big chunk of my Knowledge and brain power, um, but I went and it was the one thing. Okay, I will say I'll preface. I was nervous also because like you know, COVID still going on, and so this was obviously like a gigantic super spreader. So I was nervous about that. There were three thousand people there, maybe three thousand to four thousand, something like that. Mm-hmm. They said, um, mm-hmm. and it, it was. I enjoyed us all being in one space. I'll be honest. I really enjoyed that. Um, Granted, I didn't notice that like it was just a little difficult to navigate in terms of running from one platform to the other platform or like, you know, I'd have to cut things short when I was visiting sessions or whatever. Right. Um, that hotel
0: was wild. It really. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so or like, you know, seeing old friends or whatever. So it was also fun. It was also a little overwhelming. Those two things mm-hmm. coexisted for me that weekend. Um, mm-hmm. And presenting. I was extremely nervous to present like, ex- really? yes, yeah, yes,
0: Listener, she handled it well, beautifully.
1: <laughs> My God, it was, I was like, I have to go first. This freaking sucks. Um, I don't know what to expect. Um, but I was very surprised that like, I looked into the audience and it was a full house. And I was like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it made me feel really, really like good about myself. And it was a good moment mm-hmm. of affirmation for me that like, oh, you know, I am doing something here and I am on the right mm-hmm. track with my with my work and my thought process. And people do care about what I have to say. So, mm. yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I really enjoyed your presentation. I'm sure a lot of people are always interested to hear in what people have to say about Lauren Hill. So... <laughs> I'm glad that you had a lot of support in that moment. And you got some great questions, too, during the Q&A. So I hope, was the feedback good afterwards?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, It was super nice. I guess, like, one of the best, well, two of the best compliments I received was probably just the fact that somebody noticed that, like, a lot of the, like, Black senior scholars were in the back. And that meant a lot to me that they showed up and showed out. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I really appreciate that because I really admire their work and, you know, we're, we're going to be them one day. And so I, I think that that, that was really cool. Um, and then the other one was one of my professors uh, said that the woman who sat next to her apparently asked me if I was on the job market. <laughs> and she was like, no, she's a first year PhD ah, student. She just started. <laughs> but Calm down. Yeah, but that's like, okay, cool. Because I have a lot of fear about the job market, also, especially with academic jobs. So, like, that's when I was like, all right, cool. Like, amazing. I, I, I must be doing something right.
0: Oh, of course, we can get into that as well, because I also have a lot of job anxiety. You know, it's it's funny because there are so many people who have been on the show. There are a lot of my professors who have uh, said this like encouraging statement, but also mm, the statement that I feel a lot of uh, turmoil about, which is like, oh, you know, we're in this current cultural moment of, you know, DEI initiatives and stuff like that. So you're going to have no problem getting a job. You're going to be this huge hot commodity and everybody is going to want to snap you up as soon as you graduate, which like, okay. Mm, One, you know, discrimination is still a thing. So against black people and against women. So I don't, (laughs) I, you know, kind of those positive statements, That are made in good faith still give me some pause. But also, too, even if that is true, right, is it freedom to be a diversity hire?
1: Mm. No, yeah, no, (laughs) yes. That is like the one thing that I'm most concerned about, oddly, Mm. is like, I, so because of the Black Lives Matter movement, there has been a wave of a need for diversity hires. Which, hey, you know, like get it if you can, you know what I mean? Yes, but
0: also. But but
1: also, you know, (laughs) I don't necessarily like the fact that I will be tokenized in that way. Right. Um, Yes. It makes me feel very odd and weird, especially like when you add in all the, you know, I don't want to be somebody's token queer black woman uh, professor who's going to blah 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 and once I get there they're going to make me do so much work and it's going to be ridiculous and I'm going to have to shoulder so much crap that I didn't sign up for Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yes.
0: Mm Yes, because there's already so much unpaid labor that women in the academy are expected to do. Yes. Because we view service work as women's work that we should just be doing, that we're just like on all the committees and doing all the extra things for our students. Even the um, even the extra, this is something that I've noticed since I've started teaching, even the extra emotional labor of teaching your students, right? Like who they might feel more comfortable Going to a woman, going to a black woman to talk about, you know, personal issues that are going on in their lives versus, you know, our male counterparts that don't have to take on that labor. Um, It's just (laughs) so it's 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 frustrating when people say that in good faith and to be encouraging. Right. That you're going to get snapped up and it's it's so exciting. But like, you know being a diversity hire is signing up to be used, right? So like, right. yes, yes. You're, you're paid, you're employed. Hopefully you're doing interesting research and teaching classes that you feel passionate about. Hopefully you have access to work that you want to do, but that also comes with the baggage of, of you know, the university system will always find a way to tokenize you and to use you. That's Absolutely. the purpose, right? So yeah, so it's, it's complicated. I think all the time about oh I you know as of now it's like okay you know being a professor is still the goal but I do also think about you know if I were to decide that it wasn't for me what else could I be doing with a music PhD um you know I'm I'm really interested in archival work it could be interesting to try and do museum work or something like that like something I need an exit strategy just in case this just becomes.
1: in case yeah <laughs> i mean like one of the other things that i've actually already had very serious conversations with my parents about actually over this winter break is about the need to have a family and because of the way that the Mm. system is set up um, oh speak on it yeah i've started to think about relationships and having a child in two different contexts because that might not work for my career And that Mm. is a little scary. And I've talked to several, you know, um, women professors about, you know, how they have sacrificed not having a family for their career or Uh wish that they had uh more children or whatever. And so, you know, when I'm in my first year of hopefully a tenure track job right out the gate, which would be rock on wood, that'd be amazing. I would feel like I did the thing, you know, Um, I know they're going to put me to work. And so I've genuinely considered like, okay, do i need to have a child before i start a job you know what i mean because i'm not gonna have to, like that's another six mm-hmm. years of waiting for tenure where i'm going to genuinely be putting in a lot of hard work you know that a book right. is a lot of times required for tenure, oh, so yeah. yeah 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 there's like not a lot of room for for that type of familial commitment and i feel like if i didn't have it i would be missing out on a lot so that's
0: huge and then it's like okay Let's say logistically that works out and you have a a child, which again, does that mean you're having it during your PhD? Ah! That's exactly what that means. (laughs) 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 So then it's like, okay, let's say that it works out that way. Uh, and you go into your first tenure track job with a child, who's going to take care of your child while you're doing all this work? (laughs) So that it's also assumed that you, exactly, that you are taking care of your child or else you're a bad mom. Right. And now, you know you have to figure out with your partner or if you're having, if you're a single mom, what you're going to do and who's going to, right? Who's going to take care of your child while you are putting in all that work towards tenure? Yeah. It's it's really complicated. So it's like, if you are going to choose a job in the academy, there's not a good time to have a a child. (laughs) There's there's not a calm time to have a child because it's such a demanding career. So like, yeah, I mean, ugh. (laughs) Ugh.
1: I mean, it's complicated, and that's why, like, you know, like, since I've been thinking about it, like, actually, in practicality, I was like, you know, my parents were divorced, so I sat them down separately, and was like, you know, know, mom and dad, I really, you know, I'm really considering this thing, and, you know, it wouldn't come for another five years, maybe, but, you know, I really want you to know that I'm not joking when I talk about this, you know,
0: and I really Mm -hmm. want to
1: find a solution where I can Mm -hmm. have the best of both worlds, so just putting that out there, and they both took it Mm -hmm. really well, and so I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, great, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I guess we'll see how that, that blossoms from here. But yeah, no, that, that's definitely important to me, especially with the trajectory. Oof. Cause like, I would like, for example, dream job, dream job. I would love to get a tenure track position at an Ivy. I'd love to stay in the Northeast. That would be incredible. Um, a lot of my family is up here. A lot of my friends are over here. Um, and I like the cold, which a lot of people don't, I like the <laughs> cold. I like the snow. Um, I'm a winter baby. My birthday's in February. Um, so yeah, that, that would be incredible. And then I could keep doing my music thing. It would be great. So if that all goes the Mm -hmm. way I want, this is kind of something that I I really do have to consider.
0: Okay. Well, on this podcast, we manifest. So I'm glad you spoke it out loud (laughs) because we're bringing it to, listen, universe, here's my dream scenario. I really would like to be I would like a tenure-track position at an HBCU. Yes. Um. I feel, yeah, I feel, especially because, here's the thing, right? Because we all know, right, that the, the, the presence of uh, Black scholars in music academia, right, is pretty small. And it's mostly contained in musicology and ethnomusicology. Yes. The Society for Music Theory is 1% Black. <laughs> so right. we're literally talking about yeah i think the society uh nationwide has uh 1200 members registered and so we're talking about 1% that's that's a dozen that's 12 <laughs> like it's really scarce and i think I think so much about in doing research on black music, what black music pedagogy then looks like, what does it mean to what what's a black music theory and what does it mean to teach that in school and what is it does can that live at a PWI.
1: Mm.
0: So that's Mm -hmm. why I feel really called to you know, there's just aren't really PhDs who like got their PhD in music theory or at HBCUs there's already again just a lack of them in the field in general but what would it look like if the few black people who are in music theory were at those universities and were invested in this this black music theory pedagogy
1: idea that's real about music theory and I I empathize like that's like that's 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 wild to me first of all Second of all, I already know that music theory as a society, I guess I can speak on that. I don't know. It's going through it right now um, with reckoning with a lot of things. And so, but like music theory is also just everywhere and can be a black thing. Like black music theory does exist. And I agree with you that it's like, you know, I think the outreach kind of begins or should begin at at HBCUs when it comes to this stuff, you know, and people should know that it's not, you know, music, to put, it, to put it blanketly, like music theory is not just for white people as much as, mm-hmm. you know, orchestras will try to convince you, you know. Mm-hmm. So oh, I think that's incredible. Um, I really want to go to the, uh, I know they're doing AMS SMT this upcoming time. I want Yes, in Denver. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I really want to go. I want to actually put the, um, The work that I'm looking at now on like queer music canon, like I feel like that fits in music theory, even though I'm an ethnomusicologist, like sometimes I feel like, you know, ethno and music theory are opposite sides of the spectrum. But sometimes I feel like it comes back around like a circle, you know what I mean? And they kind of overlap. So like this would be like one of those times, I think.
0: Okay, yeah so let's uh get into the queer study stuff uh thank you so much for introducing me to this article i read e patrick johnson's uh, appropriating blackness for a class last semester so i had been familiar with him but yeah i'm this was a really interesting meaty article that i definitely am gonna have to read again at some point because i think i i think i'm tracking but mm, you know yeah <laughs> I'm going a to need to, to, to read it again. So I'd love to just hear generally, right, like what excites you about this work? And you already kind of alluded to uh, you using this work in your own research.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think, so I was first introduced to this article, actually, um, during my master's, I took a queer geographies class. Um, and Ooh. yeah, very cool, right? Um, like, you know, we start talking about this idea of queer, you know, and what is queer. And um, it, it just, I think it puts a much needed label on how to separate queer and queer and really gets into really like distinguishing the struggle of a white queer person is much different from a queer person of color. And so that to me, instead of having to type out queer person of color, every time I just say queer and like, the fact that he used on like what his grandma is talking about or how she pronounces it, I thought that was really cool. You know, it loops mm-hmm. in linguistics and representation of the South. Um, you know, me being from Virginia, I know that some people i be listening uh, and might think, you know, some people say that Virginia is not the South. It is the South. It is just <laughs> the North South, okay? It's the North South. Listeners, um, I'll
0: put her email in the <laughs> show notes. You can fight later.
1: No! <laughs> um, one of my one of my good friends is from South Carolina, and so she she'll she'll bite me on that. But I'm saying I think South <laughs> Carolina is the start of the deep South. Okay, and Virginia is the start of the South. Sure. But um, anyways, that's besides the point. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think that he so so beautifully was able to wrap in what blackness and southernness and queerness meant. And so And he was able also to challenge a lot of like the work that's already out there, like um, on Judith Butler um, Mm. and kind of push back on a lot of things. And I really appreciated that because you don't get Mm. that a lot, especially when it comes to like people who are in the realm of theory, you know? Mm.
0: Yeah. 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 I really appreciated, you know, getting to hear about his experiences with his grandmother as well, kind of at the, the beginning of the article and then the coda at the end it brought to mind you know it feels like such a a staple of black studies that people are always talking about experiences with their parents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles and right again that community aspect of like disseminating knowledge like how knowledge is communicated through these you know like oral traditions and so you know this is a huge issue in academia, right? The foregrounding of of what is in print, the foregrounding of what is written down. And, you know, in that you ostracize whole communities that have different traditions of sharing and communicating and passing down knowledge. And so this way of like writing down these stories and kind of bringing them into print and bringing them into the academy and then kind of branching off of, these experiences and this embodied knowledge um, through then adding in the theory as it kind of, as the article kind of goes on. I just think it's so like, I'm thinking of um, uh, Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. She starts off her book the same way, like talking about the experiences she's had with her grandmother, how her grandmother ingrained feminism in her, um, even though her grandma would never, describe herself as a feminist you know she's making this argument that like feminism is about the work that you do it's about the the people you do the work for and it's more than just the empty rhetoric of oh i'm a a feminist and da 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 right? right so it's it's about like this embodied living you know practice and and i think that's what black communities do so well is putting it into practice and then kind of the the writing down of these ideas and the the theorizing of this practice is is kind of where black scholars live, I think, in black studies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the black community also has a really good focus on um, lineage and legacy. And for Mm -hmm. all of us, like, you know, our grandmothers are those patriarchs. And so Mm. their their presence in our lives is very culturally tied Um, Mm. You know, whether you agree with what they're doing or not, you know what I mean, like, that's always going to stay with you. So, so Mm -hmm. incorporating a bit of that, you know, that's a that's a really high value uh, in in our community, for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. So can you share a bit about um, what you alluded to earlier, as far as like how you are wanting to incorporate this work um, in later papers or at the next SMT, AMS or whatever?
1: yeah 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 so i really want to turn this into i'm working on something called the queer canon um and so i I just got so excited yes (laughs) yes so i'm 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 really i wrote a paper this past semester on um what does like a queer repertoire look like meaning like how do we canonicize like queerness of color um and our everyday lives and i'm Mm. sort of looking at it in terms of i think that we do a lot of code switching, um, just naturally, and we use music as the medium. That's what I think, because when I talk to somebody and they tell me, you know, like for example, like they listen to Kalani and maybe like Sophie and maybe you know Mitski or something. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, we okay, we're on the same wavelength. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I understand. You you don't have to say no more. Um, so i I wanted to really you know get to like what what is that because i do genuinely Mm. like communicate that way with a lot of my queer femme friends and i should Mm. like also mention that you know i'm only talking about one half of what i believe the queer canon to be because i think um queer male presenting people should also have a say i just don't you know present that way and so when i say queer i'm just talking specifically about queer femme
0: Mm, okay Okay. No, but that's totally right as far as like that music becoming a signifier of identity itself. Um, This sign of identity that can be easily recognizable by other queer fans. Yes. Right? So maybe not necessarily this obvious splashing sign to everybody. But to other people that share that identity and are tuned into those signifiers, right, they can kind of understand, oh, OK, I understand what that means. Because right, as somebody who, you know, currently identifies as, as straight, I I write my own sense of like, quote unquote, gaydar. I'm like, mm, let me mind my business. That's not mine <laughs> to speculate. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm sitting on the side of like, you know, I'm going to let y'all have that and I don't want to I I wouldn't want to overstep mm-hmm. in um in assumptions or in right like asserting myself into a conversation that I don't particularly belong in mm-hmm. um but I think yeah that 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 becoming a sign and a signifier for people that share that identity that is easily recognizable to y'all right that's that's really neat
1: yeah absolutely and it's something that you also can like talk to your parents about and they would have no idea if you didn't bring it up you know what I mean like and that's the other thing like I think that was really helpful for me growing up you know as well and like I could share what my interests were with my parents without being specific about what exactly I mean when I say certain things Um, and so it's also turned into this form of like empowerment and so I've noticed you know for example like a lot of people around me who are queer femmes who are out um of color. We've also, you know, mm. another thing is we've also consumed the same media. And I think that's very interesting. Um, like that I can immediately talk to them about the L word and we all are on the same page about that. And like music is also canonicized through shows, TV shows. And so mm-hmm. I think that this is like a really big not as much of an anomaly because it's like an unspoken thing that we all know that exists. Um but like, let's talk about it. And let's also talk about why, you know, for example, majority of queer spaces are unsafe for queer people, because there's a lot of racism experience. So like a lot of queer people queer people might spend more time with their racial identity, even though there might be some homophobia mm-hmm. in those situations, because sometimes mm-hmm. that's what people see on the outside first, right? So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, all of, these, all of these complications and, you know, it just... I don't know. It's important to consider them, especially like today, um, with all mm-hmm. that we're facing post Black Lives Matter. Um, hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that's such an important point. Right. That like being able to to recognize the ways in which these this oppressive behavior is linked. Right. So like a huge thing for me, right. That I've been reading a lot about uh, Sabrina Strings fearing the black body, right. The way that like anti-blackness and fat phobia, right. Are linked. So like being able to recognize um, when there, there are multiple identities being oppressed at once and the compounding of that. um, I also, you know, that's such a great um, observation about, TV and film, and again, the way that that language um, is solidified through these different mediums that are intersecting with music. Um, There's this point that he kind of brings up towards the middle of the article where he says, although people of color have not, may not have theorized our lives in Foucault's terms, we have failed, or we have used discourse in subversive ways because it was necessary for our survival. So again, that point that you brought up as a kid like i was using this language and you know recognizing when it's not safe to use that language this whole embodied theory kind of idea that he brings up like it's embodied because it has to be like it's Absolutely. that's the nature of of that that survival you know
1: yes and i mean like i think music is also the perfect per- perfect way of using like developing your own litmus test that's what i described it as in my paper a litmus test um mm. like you can walk into a space and like you know if they're playing this or that I'm like mm, maybe you know maybe this is a good indicator of like what space i'm kind of walking into um and i've also definitely come out to people by playing queer music and like testing how they react to it and then they mm. react positively to it i'm like oh by the way you should know this about me you know mm. um so I think I think it's a powerful, powerful tool, especially because the queer femme community is so small and is so small and so interconnected. And um, yeah, it's just it's, it's, you know, especially being spread out I And mean, if you don't have a community like it's important to protect yourself and your peace and your well-being and um, You know i think uh, yeah i think music is the perfect outlet for something that is like you said a survival tactic or you know a safety measure per se
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh okay so something that i think is really interesting kind of in the the last section of the article uh where he says while there is intellectual work to be done inside the academy what one might call academic praxis there's also political practice outside the academy. If social changes to occur, gays, bisexuals, trans- transgendered people, and lesbians of color cannot afford to be armchair theorists. Some of us need to be in the streets, in the trenches, enacting the queer theories that we construct in the safety of the academy. So that's really interesting because it's like, yes, right. I completely agree that it's that we have to do more than just like theorize about these identities but then like what does it being in the streets really look like I'm interested to kind of know your thoughts on where your research could go like what that what that could look like practically outside the academy it's just so hard when you're in the academy right <laughs> to kind of imagine the legs like where is it going to go what does that mean like what communities is does that information do those theories actually need to get to so that the so that the work around these theories begins you know
1: yeah absolutely so i mean for ethno we have a subfield called applied ethnomusicology um so i i kind of have thought about how to transition this work into that because i don't want it to just exist in the academy um i've thought about you know i mean that for me is kind of where ethnography would come into play. Like, I've, sure. I haven't interviewed anybody on any of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I want to see how people react or you know, like a, a good setting would be a concert venue. Like I saw a Kehlani in concert in August. And it was like the most queer space I had been in in a few years. Like, tons of black people, tons of tons of black queer people. I was like, there's no men for at least 20 miles. I was like, this is crazy. It's amazing. Yes. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I just I really I've thought about, you know, just asking people, because I think, you know, as much as we value interviewing the artists and stuff, and that's really important, I think audience reception plays a huge factor in all of our work. So I've thought about, you know, just asking people, like, what does this mean to you? Like, why is this significant? Why are you choosing to gather in this space and pour your heart out and cry? And like, what is this? Like, what does this really mean for you? And it's just... It's, it's a it's a liberating experience to be in the middle of those things sometimes. i experienced that at Keilani's concert, and I went to Haley Kyoko concert um, mm. maybe back in 2018, and I felt mm. the same exact way. And there were like five marriage proposals in the audience. It was crazy. Ah. It was amazing. It's like this just feels like a little family right now, and that I think is very mm. special when we all can can gather. I think that's where the applied part for me comes in. It's really trying to define what that space, what the significance of that space is. And that
0: is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Jordan for being on the show, for sharing her experiences, for having a key. It was a great time. If you want to get in touch with me and share any feedback you have about the show, please send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com. If you want to be on the show, if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for the show, go to my website, hermusicacademia.com, fill out the contact form there. Please, please let me know what you think. Until next time, thanks for listening.